thank you for joining us for this Good Friday audio experience. Before we get started, let's go over a few things together. This audio guide may be followed in the car or on foot. If you would like to stay in your car, stay to the right of the barriers. If you would like to park and walk, follow the signs and park in the handicap and visitor spaces. This audio guide will last about 40 minutes. This is not a live recording though. If you need to pause the guide at any moment to sit and reflect, feel free to spend as much time as you need. There are seven stations indicated by props, canopies, and banners with seven different words on them. Stop at each station when prompted until the guide asks you to move on, and then move along the way at your own pace. We invite you to settle your hearts and minds as we begin this journey through what is both one of the darkest and brightest days in the history of the world, Good Friday. As we begin, let's say a prayer together. Repeat after me. Jesus, I am forever in your debt. Today, I celebrate and commemorate all that happened when you willingly gave your life. Forgive my sin that nailed you to the cross. Open my heart and my mind to your spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Please move along the way to station number one, entitled Betrayal. If needed, pause the guide until you're ready to continue. Station number one, Betrayal. In Matthew chapter 26, 14 through 16, and 20 through 23, the Bible says, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, 
he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Jesus was sharing dinner with his 12 closest friends, commemorating one of the most sacred holidays of the Jewish calendar. As he broke bread, he knew there was a traitor in his midst, one who was intimately sharing that very meal with him, even dipping his bread in the very same cup. This traitor didn't just come across a shrewd opportunity either. He actively sought an opportunity to betray him. One of Jesus' closest friends sold his life for 30 pieces of silver. The value of those 30 pieces of silver is irrelevant. The significance is that 30 pieces of silver was a price of a slave, according to law. Jesus' friend equated his life to the life of a slave. But it wasn't just active betrayal of one friend that left Jesus alone. When he needed them the most, all of Jesus' friends abandoned him. In Matthew chapter 26, 31 and 33 through 35, it says, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the very same. Despite this promise and commitment to stay with their leader, teacher, mentor, and friend, all 12 of Jesus' friends abandoned him. They denied ever knowing him. One betrayed him for money, the other 11 out of fear and to save embarrassment. On the worst and last night of Jesus' life, when he needed those he loved, he was left alone and desperate. Spend some time in silence, thinking about how a friend has betrayed you and how you may have betrayed a friend. Imagine the pain Jesus felt knowing his friend would betray him. You'll be given a cue when it's time to continue along the way. Pray with me and repeat after me. Jesus, forgive my betrayal of you and your children. Help me forgive those who betray me. Thank you, Jesus. Please move along the way to station number two, entitled Condemnation. If needed, pause the guide until you are ready to continue.
station number two. Condemnation. The word condemnation is defined as the expression of very strong disapproval. It can also mean the action of condemning someone to a punishment. But in the story of Jesus being handed over to be killed, disapproval was rampant. We just discussed how Jesus' own disciples disapproved of the perception that they were linked to him. The people accusing Jesus disapproved of his claims and his teachings. Even Pilate, the governor in charge of condemning criminals, disapproved of the crowd's desires. Luke 23, 13-16 says, Pilate then called together the chief priests, and the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold. I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look. Nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. After being personally vetted by Pilate and even Herod himself, no guilt was found in Jesus that was worthy of death. There was one, though, who was. An insurrectionist named Barabbas was imprisoned and awaiting death for what was described in the Gospels as robbery, insurrection, and murder. And being aware of the Jewish tradition of pardoning a criminal before Passover, Pilate asked the crowd if they would rather release an innocent man in Jesus or a murderer in Barabbas. The crowd demanded the release of Barabbas, and their voices prevailed, thus condemning Jesus to death. If only we were there knowing what we know today, that never would have happened, right? But the reality is, we choose sin over Jesus every day, and each time we do, we choose death by participating in the release of a murderer in order to condemn an innocent man. And we shout. Crucify him. Jesus was willing to give his life even in the stead of Barabbas who had taken lives and deserved to have his taken in return. You and me, we are Barabbas. We are guilty of sin and deserve to be condemned. Yet, by the grace of Jesus, we traded his death for our life. Romans 6, 23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The consequence of our sin is death, and it is we who deserve condemnation. But Jesus freely gave his life in order to set us free. So, Barabbas, hold your hands in front of you with your palms facing the ground. Imagine you are holding the hands of the one who took your condemnation. He has already received condemnation for all of your sins. Confess them to him now, and pass them into his hands.
Flip your hands over so that your palms are facing the sky. Continue holding the hands of the one who is condemned and allow him to pass his gift to you. Receive his love, grace, mercy, and sacrifice. move along the way to station number three entitled Sacrifice. If needed, pause the guide until you are ready to continue. Station number three, Sacrifice. The city of Jerusalem was buzzing with sounds of thousands of visitors that had come to celebrate the Passover feast there. Jerusalem is the city of the great King David. Just as important to our remembrance today is that Jerusalem is where the Jewish temple was located. The temple is where the priests studied and taught. It was the center of the Jews' religious life and feasts. It is where the sacrifices were offered to God. Jerusalem, the temple, the sacrifice. Jews were required to sacrifice an animal, a lamb or doves, to receive forgiveness for any sins they had committed. This trip to Jerusalem was a time when families would make things right with God by offering the life and the blood of an innocent animal as a payment for their unfaithfulness to God. All who were in Jerusalem knew this. They were there for the sacrifice, but they just didn't know how special this year's sacrifice would be. The dictionary defines the term sacrifice this way, an act of offering to a God something precious, such as the killing of a victim on an altar. The dictionary also defines it as the destruction or surrender of something for the sake of something else. Let's remember these definitions at this station. 700 years before Jesus walked the streets of Jerusalem, the prophet Isaiah prophesied that there would be one who would come and be the sacrifice for us. Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, says it this way, All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. 
one of Jesus' best friends and followers, John, tells the story of Jesus. In this story, the one we call the Gospel of John, the disciple makes us open our eyes to Jesus' sacrifice. When Jesus went down to the Jordan River to be baptized, his cousin, John the Baptist, saw him walking towards him in the river. As Jesus drew near, John the Baptist exclaimed for all to hear, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. Everyone, including Jesus, knew that being called a lamb, Jesus was being called a sacrifice. He was the sacrifice. John also tells us that Jesus brings good news by telling of God's great love for the world, and he cannot help but tell others about it when he himself says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes should not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 And Jesus knows what the cost of purchasing that eternal life for me and for you is. For our friends, for our enemies, for black, white, and brown-skinned believers, He is the sacrifice. John goes on to tell us that Jesus would go on to teach His friends and followers that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down their life for His friends. John 15, verse 13. He knew what this meant for his followers' lives. He also wanted them to remember it when he gave his life for them, for us. He is willing to sacrifice his life. With the last breath in Jesus' life, John tells us that Jesus said, It is finished! And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. The journey of Isaiah's lamb to the slaughter was finished. He had taken on the punishment for the sins of others. His life had been offered to God for the forgiveness of others. Jesus is the sacrifice. Please move along the way to station number four entitled Crucifixion. If needed, pause the guide until you are ready to continue. Station number four, Crucifixion. The Crucifixion of Jesus Christ was one of the most defining moments in human history. When those with religion put Christ to death, they wouldn't even consider that he might be telling the truth. 
that he was the Messiah. By refusing to believe him, those with religion sealed their own fate. Let me ask you, have you too refused to believe what Jesus said about himself? The Jewish high priests and elders first accused Jesus of blasphemy, but they needed Rome to approve their death sentence. The crowds granted their wish as chants of, Crucify him! were echoed throughout the city. As was common, Jesus was flogged his flesh tearing from the impact of the leather-thonged whip. Tiny pieces of metal were interwoven with the lash, causing deep cuts. All this while being mocked, struck repeatedly in the head, and spat upon. The spectacle continued as he was led to Golgotha, but before they nailed him to the cross, he was offered a cheap mixture of Roman wine vinegar. It was said this would alleviate his suffering by dulling the pain. He refused the drink. Then, stake-like nails were driven through his wrists and feet, fastening him to wooden beams. His cross was then erected between two convicted criminals. Look there, above his head, a sign tauntingly read, the King of the Jews. Over the next six hours, Jesus experienced unimaginable pain. Within his view, Soldiers cast lots for the clothing. From the cross, Jesus caught a glimpse of his mother Mary, near his disciple John. He told her, Dear woman, here is your son, referencing John. And to John he said, Here is your mother. He then cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's difficult to understand in what sense Jesus was forsaken by God. Surely God approved of his work, his life, and his sacrifice in that moment. The prophet Isaiah, centuries before the birth of Jesus, said, it was our weakness he carried, our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole and was whipped so we could be healed. Well, as Jesus breathed his last, the earth shook and the rocks split, tombs broke open, 
and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. That is the power of God's love for you. Pray with me. Lord, help us acknowledge and appreciate what Jesus did at Calvary. Thank you for the cross and for bearing my sins. Amen. Please move along the way to station number five, entitled Death. If needed, pause the guide until you are ready to continue. Station number five, death. Despite the betrayal, condemnation, and sacrifice, even the crucifixion, he died so we could have a life. He pacified the grave and fed its appetite. They wrapped him tight and rolled the taconite to black the light. That night was grim. The light was dim. Disciples said they'd fight for him, but he died for them in the violent whim with no Vicodin to subside the writhing within. But the writing had been on the wall for his whole life. He'd been dividing men, impiling enemies. They kept filing in, excited to ignite the fire, light it high with hydrogen, and let the fight begin. But he wouldn't fight. He turned the other cheek for another strike. They would pass a fist across his chin just to get a rise out of him. He was pacifist, they still got a rise out the din. But now it's been about an hour since his power went. The coward split as he shouted with the loudest pitch undoubted. It is finished. Breathed his last breath. Cause we needed that death. And even as it succeeded, death had been defeated. It unjustly took an innocent man's life. So Jesus finished it that night. Luke 23 44 through 48. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, 
he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. The hunger of death had to be satisfied. It was undefeated. Even in the stories of people being raised to life along the way of the biblical narrative, those people eventually had to die again. In the stories of Enoch and Elijah, in which they did not die, death was still only cheated and not defeated. The wages of sin is death. In order to defeat death, there had to be one who was blameless, without sin. And that one was Jesus, and his death tore the curtain of the temple from top to bottom, telling us there is nothing, not even death itself, that could keep us from the love of the Father. Paul wrote in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Each year, 50% of the grass in the Serengeti in Africa burns to ash. Out of the ash, healthy grass rich in minerals shoots up and gives life to the animals. Without the death of the old grass, life would not continue in the Serengeti. In the same way, it is the death of the innocent one, Jesus Christ, that brings life to all. His death brings life. Jesus lowered himself to death in order to elevate us into eternity. And in this eternity, death never wins. Jesus, your death has given us life. Let us use it to glorify you. Let us not forget that you lowered yourself to death in order to elevate us into eternity. Thank you, Jesus. Please move along the way to station number six, entitled Burial. If needed, pause the guide until you are ready to continue. Station 6, Burial During this season, Christians most especially like to talk about the empty tomb because the Lord is risen. But before he could rise, he had to be buried. Before there was an empty tomb, there had to be a filled one. It almost strikes you in the face 
the fact that Jesus not only died, but he was buried. Death seems final, but burial, even more so. His lungs ceased breathing, his heart stopped pumping, and his brain flatlined. It was obvious Jesus was dead and gone. There was nothing left to do but bury him. So Joseph of Arimathea went to Pilate and asked for the body. Joseph took it off the cross. He wrapped it in linen cloth and placed it in a tomb cut in the rock. According to Luke chapter 23, verse 53, it was a tomb in which no one had yet been laid. There were some women who tracked after Joseph and saw for themselves where the body was placed. Make no mistake about it. Jesus was buried. The tomb was filled. Have you ever, at some point during an open casket funeral, allow your mind to drift to your own impending death and burial? I've had those eerie thoughts of our soulless bodies being put on display for mourners and eventually lowered into the depths of the earth. In the burial of Jesus, in the darkest regions of the human experience, there is triumph. Listen to what Psalm 16:10 says. For you, God, will not leave my soul among the dead. Did you hear that? Jesus' Father refused to abandon his body to the grave for long. He would not abandon Jesus, and he will not abandon you. Previously, when Jesus' friend Lazarus died, our Lord wept for him. In fact, Jesus wept all while knowing he could and would personally resurrect Lazarus from the dead. It is appropriate for those who know Jesus to shed tears, as it was our Lord himself who filled this tomb. It's okay to weep. It's okay to be filled with sorrow as this earthen vessel is sealed in an empty tomb. But there's much more. God's intent for Jesus is also his intent for us. Lo, in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Please move along the way to station number seven, entitled Hope. If needed, pause the guide until you're ready to continue.
Station number seven, Hope. Hurt and hope, the two are linked together. As we immerse ourselves in the story of Jesus' followers, we cannot help but experience the hurt that the men and women who followed Jesus must have felt. The past and the present blend together as our finite minds experience the complexity of an infinite Savior. They had left their homes to follow Him. They left their jobs to follow Him. They themselves had become outsiders to the religious life they had always known. Jesus was going to lead them to deeper relationships. Jesus was going to lead them to true riches. Jesus was going to establish a new kingdom and show them how to live in it. Jesus is dead. His death is no fault of his own. And it hurts. He loved us. We loved him. We've never known anyone like him. And now he is dead. Hope. In the darkest moments of our heart, can hope exist? A man once said, hope is a dangerous thing. And it is. It's dangerous because it will make us live as though something that is not true is true. Or maybe we should say, live as though something that is not true yet is true. The people around us, our experience with hurt in the present, evidence denies what we hope to be true. There that moment when Jesus' disciples hold their hurt in one hand and their hope in the other hand. Jesus is dead. The disciples have seen the dead body of their king. John the disciple, along with Jesus' mother, Mary, and several others close to Jesus, saw Joseph and Nicodemus take Jesus' lifeless body, wrap it in cloth, and place it in a tomb. Jesus had really died. But somehow the whispers of hope come. The loud voices of hurt began to be interrupted by hope. What did he say about destroying the temple in three days and rebuilding it one day? What did Jesus mean when he talked about the sign of Jonah? He said it would be the only evidence he'd give this unbelieving generation. Why did he say that he'd be in earth for three days? Jesus said that he'd have to suffer and then be killed and after the third day, he would rise again. Could it be? Will he rise from the dead? Is he really dead? Jesus' mother and followers saw him dead and buried. The evidence, their experience, the voices around them tell them that Jesus is dead. Jesus had really died.
hope. At this moment, we and Jesus' followers throughout thousands of years are left with the evidence of Jesus' death and hope. Because of our faith that Jesus is the Son of God, the miracle-working, way-making, dead-raising, sick-healing, food-multiplying, wine-making, truth-teaching Messiah, and so much more, we have hope. But it is a hope that is stronger and louder than our hurt. We cannot see the evidence for our hope in Jesus' return, but we will hold on to that hope. In a very dark time, one of Jesus' followers said, But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We want to encourage you to contemplate and silence the things you have heard and experienced today. Thank you for moving along the way with us for this Good Friday audio experience. If you have used a CD, please drop it in the box so others may use it. May the Lord bless you and keep you as you leave here today.